Hello, Brussels Sprouts listeners. Today, we're doing something new. We're sharing with you the latest episode of another podcast produced by Foreign Policy Magazine called Foreign Policy Live that we think you might find of interest. It features Paul Shari, Executive Vice President and the Director of Studies here at the Center for a New American Security, who sat down with Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief, Ravi Agarwal, for a discussion about all things artificial intelligence. Paul leads CNAS's Artificial Intelligence Safety and Stability Project and recently wrote the cover essay for the latest issue of Foreign Policy on how governments are struggling to catch up with technology companies when it comes to regulation. The global race for AI has far-reaching effects on global security, economics, and great power competition. This race also has a transatlantic dimension as the United States and European Union come to grips with how democracies can set the rules of the road for AI, including through the EU's Artificial Intelligence Act, the US-EU Trade and Technology Council, and the G7. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode from Foreign Policy and check out more of the work CNES is doing on AI at cnes.org. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. All of a sudden, everyone is talking about artificial intelligence. It's gone from being a relatively niche area a year ago to a topic that the broader public seems obsessed with. Some of this new interest, to be fair, is because of ChatGPT. When it launched late last year, I think it connected with non-AI experts because it started doing well at very human tasks, research, school tests, the bar exam. And it spurred larger public debate about AI's role in society, its impact on jobs, the economy, and so much else. But the area that's gotten less public attention is how AI can impact geopolitics. And that's the area our summer print issue takes on. It's called The Scramble for AI. And it has a great set of essays exploring how AI has sparked a new arms race of sorts and how it's already having a remarkable impact on warfare and deterrence. You can read more in the links on this page. The lead essay in the package is by Paul Share, who compares the AI race today to the nuclear race a generation ago. Like then, this race will create a world of haves and have-nots. Much of the scramble for AI is around controlling access to the computing hardware needed to train powerful AI models. And that leads to all kinds of questions about alliances, export controls, sanctions, regulation. You really must read the essay. In addition to our cover essay, Paul is the author of Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. He spent time at the Pentagon, where he worked on emerging weapons technologies, and he's currently the Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security. As always, FP subscribers get to send in questions that frame these discussions. If you would like to do that too, subscribe now. Go to foreignpolicy.com, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Let's dive in. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So let's start at the very beginning. You compare today's scramble for AI with the nuclear race. In other words, we're going to create a world of haves and have-nots. And that's because immense amounts of computing power are needed to fuel large learning models on AI. Just explain that a bit more. That's right. 
So one of the central questions in AI is who is going to have access to this technology? Is it going to be something that's concentrated in the hands of a small number of actors like nuclear weapons or widely proliferated like smartphones are today? And one of the trends we've seen in AI is this growth towards these massive amounts of computing hardware that are being used to train the most capable systems, systems like ChatGPT. They're trained on thousands of very specialized chips running for weeks or months at a time. And that's very costly, requires a lot of engineering talent, and that's concentrating power at who's able to build the most advanced models in a very small number of actors. So just to ask, how much computing power does GPT-4 need? And you know, if I uh, just won the biggest lottery in the world and I wanted to try and match it, how much would it cost? Well, the costs have been growing at just an absolutely astronomical rate. So the amount of computing power that's being used to train the most powerful systems has increased by a factor of 10 billion from 2010 to 2022. And in the last year, we've started to see actually the statistics go dark on some of the most powerful systems because companies like OpenAI are not reporting anymore how many chips they used. So we have good information on things like GPT-3. GPT-4, we have less information on, but these most advanced models are costing in the, on the order of about tens of millions of dollars to train them for their final training run. More when you look at all of the experiments that are leading up to that final training run. And Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, has quoted a figure of $100 million for training GPT-4. That's, that's pretty pricey. And that's just the training. That's right. So these systems rely on data, massive data sets, hundreds of gigabytes of data. They rely on improvements in the algorithms. And then the data is, um, is trained using hardware, using these thousands of very specialized chips that are very, very costly. And that training process produces a trained model on the other end, which is what if you, if you use ChatGPT, that's what you're actually interacting with when you're sending queries to and getting responses from that trained model. That's the output of the training process. Mm. Now, are companies the only ones that are investing in large learning models? Where do countries fit in? And in general, where is the money coming from? Well, because of the really high cost here, it's concentrating power in the hands of, you know, really a small number of big tech companies. There's only a handful of leading AI labs at the moment, OpenAI, Google DeepMind, and Anthropic. And most of them are backed by um, tech companies pretty deep pockets. So Microsoft has said they're investing $10 billion into OpenAI. Google obviously is quite a bit of money and Anthropic's also partnering with them. You know, Chinese labs are not far behind. They're a fast follower in this space. They're maybe 18 months or so behind the leading edge because even though there's only a small number of companies building the most capable models, these systems also proliferate pretty quickly because there's a lot of companies that once they produce them, they then make them open source. And then they're widely available for others to adapt and to modify. So uh, let's park China for a minute because I feel like that's a big area that we're gonna come back to. But I wanna linger on the nuclear analogy just a bit longer. So let's talk about access. Why is controlling access to computing hardware so crucial in the development uh, of AI? So one of the things we've seen in the last year or two 
is this huge paradigm shift in the field of AI from what had been over the last decade or so, narrow AI systems like AlphaGo, the system that beat top human players in the Chinese strategy game Go. Well, it could just play Go. That's all it could do. It couldn't play chess or write a poem or analyze an image. Well, the most capable systems like GPT-4, they can do all of those things and many more. They're much more general purpose. So as we've seen companies scaling up to this massive amounts of computing hardware and huge data sets, one effect is that the models can then do a whole wide range of tasks. And that means that they're inherently dual use, kind of like how nuclear power is beneficial uses for civilian nuclear reactors, but also can be used for nuclear weapons. AI is in some ways even more dual use. It could be used for a whole wide range of things, good and bad, fixing uh, computer code, but also finding cyber vulnerabilities, writing marketing emails, but also generating spear phishing emails or disinformation. And so that makes proliferation a problem and concern about you know, what happens when some of these really powerful AI systems are available to basically anybody. Wow. And when you say, when you talk about proliferation, I'm curious, which part of it are we the most worried about? So, you know, is it the hardware um, that is a controllable resource or is it algorithms and data and software that is something we can control access to? How does that market for access work? So right now, what's happening is that a lot of models, once they're trained, the trained model was put up open source on the web, and that's just a piece of software, and that proliferates very, very easily. But the, the sort of hook to think about controlling proliferation here is really at the hardware level. So much like with nuclear weapons, where the world was able to control proliferation, not stop it completely, but manage proliferation and slow it down by controlling access to the underlying physical resources that countries need to build nuclear weapons, weapons-grade uranium and plutonium, there's also an opportunity to do something similar with AI by controlling hardware. Because the chips that are needed to train these models are very specialized. The most advanced uh, chips in the world are only built in two countries, in Taiwan and South Korea. They rely on equipment that only three countries in the world make, the Netherlands, Japan, and the United States. And so there's an opportunity to start shaping then who has access to this underlying physical resource, the hardware, the computer chips that are needed to train these most capable models and to manage proliferation that way. Can we spend a bit more on the places that are currently manufacturing and in control of the world's best chips and the components that go into creating and making and sustaining AI? Yeah, so the perhaps saving grace here to managing the proliferation of this technology is that the supply chains are very tightly controlled. 90% of the most advanced chips in the world are made in Taiwan. The next leader is South Korea. And the equipment themselves comes, as I mentioned, from only these three countries, Japan, the Netherlands, and the United States. In some cases, there's a single monopoly. So the Dutch company ASML, for example, is the only maker of the extreme ultraviolet lithography equipment that's used to make the most advanced chips. And those three countries, Japan, the Netherlands, and the US, they control 90% of the market for the tools and equipment and the materials that are needed to make these most advanced chips. And so we've already started to see, in fact, these countries cooperate on export controls surrounding this technology 
in just the last six months or so, Japan and the Netherlands joining the U.S. on export controls on these advanced semiconductor tools going to China, for example. And a lot of the companies you mentioned, ASML, for example, TSMC in Taiwan, they've become very familiar names. Right. One other company, NVIDIA, has recently just gone on a tear on the stock market. What is their sort of role and, and standing in, in the market for this? So there's been this, this bifurcation over the last you know uh, decade or so, or a couple of decades in the chip field away from one company that both designs and makes the chips towards companies that specialize in design, like NVIDIA, and those that specialize in manufacturing, like TSMC. So NVIDIA is the leading designer of these very advanced AI chips, graphics processing units or GPUs. So they're uh, in a fabulous place as a company right now because everybody wants to jump into AI. To get into AI, they need the hardware and NVIDIA is the leader in that space. And um, that's why we're seeing the company just do so absolutely well. And the specialties that are needed to design these chips are also very specialized, very difficult to do. And so they're uh, in a you know, very strong place as a market leader. You know, given that the framing for much of what we're discussing today, and of course, we are Foreign Policy Magazine, so much of this is about a, a great global race. And there's a race between countries, obviously. There's a separate, I would say, parallel but interconnected race between companies. But how do companies and countries differ? So we know that, you know, in a country like China, that distinction is sometimes hard, harder to tell because companies can often be state-owned. They can often be uh, state interference. But in a country uh, that is a democracy, say the United States, that distinction then sort of becomes a bit more clear where, you know, companies have more autonomy. So how do they think about this race in terms of both a geopolitical country race, but also a company race? Well, we're in an interesting place where the leaders in the technology are not, you know, as they were in, for example, uh, nuclear weapons or the space race, it was government developing this. Now it's actually private industry. So it's not you know, government-funded projects. It's those being led by private companies like OpenAI, for example. But as we've seen the geopolitical tensions heat up between the US and China, obviously that's led to big moves in Washington and Beijing to start to calibrate some of those US-China tech ties. The export controls that the Biden administration levied on advanced chips going to China and chip manufacturing equipment back in October of last year was a huge move from a geopolitical standpoint and also a big one in the industry. Um, and so, you know, similar to other areas, we'll begin to see Washington uh, beginning to, to step in from a national security standpoint to regulate some of these U.S.-China tech relationships, whether it's from business or academia. Uh, sometimes those do create points of friction and companies understandably are not going to come out, you know, maybe publicly and say that. Um, but there are areas where the interests are not always directly aligned. Um, and I think that that's a, a difficult challenge for both industry and government to navigate. So you mentioned the CHIPS Act. We're now several months into the start of its implementation. And, you know, bearing in mind that a lot of uh, essentially sanctions like this take time to ripple through the industry, especially with contractors and subcontractors. 
How is the CHIPS Act working so far in terms of constraining China's access to high-end semiconductors? So we don't really know yet. So industry has been fairly buffeted, at least on the chip side, from the effects of this, just because the demand for these advanced chips is so high that um, you know TSMC can't churn out the chips fast enough to meet global demand. And so that's not you know, had a huge effect. On the tooling and equipment side, there's certainly some impact there from U.S. businesses not being able to sell to China. What the effect is on slowing China's AI industry, I think, will take some time to play out, in part because the way that the export controls are set right now, they're sort of just below the most advanced chips. And China already has stockpiled some of the most advanced chips that are restricted. And there's ones that they can still purchase that are close to, but not quite there. So they're not going to have an immediate effect. Their intent really is that if these controls stay in place, they're likely to have an effect that builds over time as the gap between the hardware that China can get access to and what other countries, say the US or the UK, can have access to widens. And that may have an effect of slowing down China's AI industry. Mm. And again, bearing in mind how quickly uh, there are advances in this field, how much of a leader is the United States on AI right now vis-a-vis China or other countries? How do you characterize the difference? Well, that's such a core question that comes up all the time in the space is who's ahead. It depends a little bit on what you're counting. So if you're looking at the most advanced models, sure, the companies that are building them are in the U.S. or the United Kingdom. But these models proliferate very, very quickly. So Chinese labs are maybe 18 months or so behind some of the most advanced models. That's not that far behind. And in many ways, what's going to matter more is implementation is who's able to actually take these systems and adopt them in society. And that's a place where it's a mixed bag on both sides. There's some areas like facial recognition, where China's far ahead in adoption because they've adopted facial recognition as part of this very broad surveillance state. There are other areas where like large language models, for example, like ChatGPT, Chinese sensors have actually been cracking down on the use of these generative models because they don't want some AI system, you know, model saying something that's offensive to the Chinese Communist Party. And so the political system in the U.S. and China affects implementation in different ways. But I think the key insight here is that the U.S. has core advantages in hardware and in human talent, because the best AI scientists in the world, they want to come to the United States and study and work here. And that's a big advantage that the U.S. has over China in this competition in the long run. That is, of course, assuming America can also fix and improve its immigration uh, system. I have two subscriber questions I'm going to put to you together. Uh, One is from Stephen Moore, um, who asks, isn't great power competition just an inevitable and AI the latest substrate for competition? And the second question is from Alex Jansen, uh, who says winning the AI race is not necessarily a function of available computing power anymore, but who can curate the best and most data for fine-tuning it, which is in turn a question of how much workforce is available. Do you agree? Well, I think great power competition is inevitable. Certainly the U.S. and China are competing on a number of dimensions, political, military, economic, and technological, and AI is a component of that. Now, the question about data really gets to this core issue of where does an advantage come from? 
I think that China's alleged authoritarian advantage is overstated. That in fact, um, the United States has access to ample amounts of data. And one of the arguments why people have said that China has an advantage here is because of the Chinese Communist Party's surveillance state and that you know, scooping up much more data about its citizens. But the important thing to recognize um, is that there are limits inside China to the extent to which the government is collecting data versus private companies. And in fact, the government's been weighing in and restricting what companies can do, uh, putting in place consumer privacy laws inside China. It still has some way to go in terms of maturity, but certainly we don't actually have federal data privacy regulation here in the US either. And the other you know, argument for China's advantage has been its population, which turns out to matter a lot less than the user base of tech companies. U.S. tech companies have global reach. Facebook and YouTube have over 2 billion users each. So in many ways, data is a very level playing field. Now, you wrote a separate uh, essay for us, which was an insider-only essay. That was on how the United States can maintain its lead on AI. Give us a taste of what you argued. How can the U.S. lead? So hardware is central to this competition. And that's a place where the U.S. has a huge asymmetric advantage over China. And if the U.S. can double down in its advantages in hardware because of the unique role that the U.S. and its allies and partners play in the chip supply chain, then the U.S. will be in a very strong place to stay ahead in AI competition. And so that means continuing on export controls throughout the supply chain of advanced chips, including looking at things like enforcement of existing export controls, tracking the chips to make sure they're not being smuggled out to China, looking at controlling uh, cloud computing centers and the way those resources are being used, but also investing here at home in hardware, using some of the $50 billion coming out of the CHIPS Act to double down on U.S. companies being right at the front in research and development for next generation semiconductor technology and investing in federal resources for hardware for academics. To address this issue of the haves and have-nots, the fact that academics are being left out of this big growth in computing hardware and costs that are happening out in the private sector and using federal resources to help somewhat level the playing field so that we can harness all of the advantages that the U.S. has in U.S. universities and academics. You know, it's interesting what you say about haves and have-nots um, vis-a-vis academics, because there are so many ways of looking at who the haves are and who the have-nots are. And we spent a lot of time talking about the U.S., a little bit about China. But when you think of countries outside of the world's top seven or eight economies, a majority of the world lives in countries that would fall in, in the have-nots category. Where do they stand when it comes to AI in the next decade, 20 years, how do they compete? How far behind are they? And how much do they stand to lose uh, in a world in which just a handful of countries control cutting-edge semiconductors, cutting-edge research, cutting-edge products? And I'm thinking about big countries here, like Bangladesh uh, or Egypt, countries with big populations that simply won't be able to compete in the same way, given the amounts of money you've been describing. That's right. So, so far over the last decade, the uh, benefits of AI technology have been pretty widely distributed because these systems proliferate so quickly, 
the models that are trained are put open source online onto repositories where anyone can download them and use them. Data sets are placed open source online that others can use and build on. And once a model has been trained, it can be modified pretty easily and pretty cheaply. So an AI model that might have cost $10 million to train the model, then if the company that builds it puts it up online, someone else might be able to download that and use it as is, or even modify it for some purpose for only a few hundred dollars. And that's a huge asymmetry in cost. And that's been a reason why up until now, the gains have been pretty widely distributed. Now, I think one of the big questions going forward is, is that gonna continue? And as the costs keep rising, as the impact of these models, their, their capabilities keeps growing, and the geopolitical race is heating up, are we gonna see companies and probably governments begin clamping down? And that's the trend. And so I think we are likely to be in a place going forward when we see a bifurcation of the industry. We still have a really thriving and active open source ecosystem that everyone can benefit from, but the most capable, the most advanced systems, those end up being closed and proprietary. And a lot of other actors are gonna get locked out of these most advanced systems. And then just play that forward a little bit more. So big countries um, that are not top 10 economies get locked out. What does that mean in tangible terms? Well, so the companies that are then training these models are going to have incentives for others to build apps on top of their models. We've already seen this, for example, that OpenAI is letting others build apps that use ChatGPT or GPT-4, its most advanced version. But other companies don't have access to the underlying model itself, so they can send it queries, they can get responses. So similar to what we've seen in other parts of the tech ecosystem, in desktop and mobile and in social media platforms, we could end up in a place where there's this winner-take-all dynamic where you just have a couple companies that control the underlying, um, you know, in effect, sort of the operating system of these AI systems. And others are able to build apps on top of it but there's going to be big advantages to those companies that actually control the underlying model. I want to spend a minute on warfare and deterrence as it pertains to AI and the larger sort of great game that we've been discussing. Um, General Stanley McChrystal and uh, Anshu Roy from Rhombus AI uh, wrote another piece in our print issue, uh, basically looking at how companies and countries are already mining immense amounts of data you're putting it into AI models and systems, and they're able to predict with a surprising degree of efficiency and accuracy where certain trends in wars are headed. They also claim to be able to predict where the war in Ukraine might be headed six months from now. And it's really cool the kinds of data points that they're able to use and then attach sort of probabilities to that are, you know, stronger and better probabilities than we had 10 years ago to the point that uh, a general like Stanley McChrystal is able to say, yes, I value these inputs. Um, Paul, give us a sketch of you know where you see countries competing over AI as it pertains to warfare. Right. So um, we've been talking a lot about hardware, but data is also a really essential input into machine learning systems because they're trained on data rather than a set of rules that's programmed in by people. And so 
companies or countries or militaries that can find ways of harnessing their data, of refining it, and then using it for machine learning systems are going to have a huge advantage. Any place where we have large and diverse data sets that can help to characterize some kind of problem, or task, or behavior, it's quite possible we're able to train machine learning systems to analyze that data, to predict outcomes, to look for outliers, or to maybe even train some kind of automated system to perform a task. But there are weaknesses here, and I think it's important to acknowledge them. AI is not magic. And what the AI systems don't do well is they don't generalize to novel situations. So if you end up in a circumstance where now there's something that's not in the training data that the mm. AI system hadn't foreseen, humans can at least look at that and say, well, okay, that's, that's different than what I'm experienced, but humans can generalize and kind of maybe make a good guess. AI systems are not that great at doing that. And so there is sort of a danger zone where, particularly from a geopolitical context or a military context, there could be situations where the AI system fails pretty catastrophically. And militaries are also going to have to take that into account. That's a huge factor in warfare. You have an adaptive adversary. They're going to try to find ways to exploit your AI system and take advantage of it as well. Wow. You're making AI not sound very intelligent here. Um, one of our subscribers, uh, Nicholas Kenny, uh, has a question related to what we're discussing. And he points out that AI could catalyze a revolution in military affairs. But if it does, um, if what we're describing is true, then which states and non-state actors are best positioned to be leaders in such a revolution? Well, I think that's likely to be true over time. And it'll take you know some years for that to play out, but we're already seeing AI used, for example, in Ukraine on the ground by civilian drone operators that are using AI image classifiers to identify objects like Russian tanks. What the history of military technical innovation shows is that what matters most is not having the technology first or even having the best technology, but finding the best ways of using it. So if you look at airplanes, for example, Airplanes were invented in the United States. By the time you get to World War II, that gives the U.S. no meaningful advantage in aircraft technology. What matters most is figuring out, what do you do with airplanes? All of the great powers at the time have access to airplanes. It's figuring out how do you use them most effectively. Japan and the United States innovated with carrier aviation. And Great Britain, who actually initially led in carrier aviation, they stumbled and fell behind not because of the technology, but because of bureaucratic and cultural reasons. And so that's what's going to be really key to taking advantage of this technology, especially in the military space. It's going to be having institutions that are innovative and adaptive and can find creative and clever ways of using AI for military advantage. I want to talk now about some of the potential risks of AI and then move us towards uh, a conversation about regulation. Just broadly, and again, channeling some of the um, analogy we made at the start with the nuclear race, what are some of the potential risks uh, that you see associated with the widespread use of large language models, um, the dual use capabilities you mentioned, the use of AI by countries, and how do all of these risks differ from what we saw in the nuclear race? Right. Well, um, there are a lot of areas where AI is causing harm today in facial recognition, in 
algorithmic discrimination or privacy violations. I think it's important to keep in mind that the harms we're seeing in the world today from AI are actually from yesterday's AI systems. They're from systems that have come out five years ago, 10 years ago, the big leap forward in image recognition that has enabled facial recognition is over 10 years old. Deep fakes are over five years old. And so the most cutting edge systems um, like you know, GPT-4, these really most advanced AI models, they haven't even proliferated yet. So we can look at them and envision what kinds of harms might be possible in the future, but we're not there yet. And we're gonna be walking into that future in the next couple of years. And one of the things that's quite concerning is because they're dual use, these models can be used for offensive cyber attacks, for potentially chemical or biological attacks, to help compress information, to enable people to carry out some kind of malicious attack or other kind of harm. And in fact, GPT-4 was able to synthesize chemical weapons. And some researchers actually connected it to a remote cloud lab, a physical facility that does chemical experiments that you connect to remotely and ask GPT if you'd be willing to synthesize chemical weapons in the lab. Now, they didn't actually do it. They didn't make these chemical weapons, but the system could do that. And so that's the kind of thing where having that available to just anybody who could download it and use it would be a real problem and we need to start guarding against some of those risks as we're going to be headed into that future. There have been a spate of warnings about AI and its ability to sort of, you know, potentially lead to human extinction even. Um, how do you think about these warnings? Are they overblown? Are they dramatic? Uh, are they exactly as they should be? And also, is some of this about sentience? Or is it about more sort of traditional risks uh, as you're describing them of, you know, the likes of ChatGPT4 being able to simulate weapons construction or something like that? That's right. Well, some AI researchers have been saying that they're worried that AI could pose risk to human extinction on par with climate change or nuclear weapons. Uh, those are definitely dramatic statements. And whether or not the overblown is the subject of a lot of debate. I think it's you know worth keeping a couple of things in mind. One is that you know ChatGPT is not going to take over the world. That's the good news. We're at no risk of that with the systems that exist today. But things have been moving forward really fast. The last year or 18 months has seen faster progress than even a lot of AI researchers anticipated, which is what's causing some top researchers to say, whoa, we're worried. We didn't think we'd get here, but here we are. Now we're concerned. And you know, the goal of the field of AI is to build machines that are intelligent like people. So yeah, if they're able to do what they're trying to do, that could be a problem. Right now, we have a real hard time controlling the systems that exist today. We have a hard time controlling facial recognition systems and making sure they're not doing something strange or discriminatory or biased against people. So as we see these systems scaling up in intelligence, those problems are not yet solved. And so as we see systems that become more capable, we wanna make sure that they're aligned with human values, that we can make sure that they act in a way that's reliable and consistent, and they're not gonna cause harms either intentionally or accidentally. You know, and at one point in your essay, you point out that companies 
may not always be aligned with the right values that policymakers uh, might espouse, right? Right. I mean, that's another problem is that um, as we see, and it's a huge criticism of this space, is as we see power being concentrated in a handful of tech companies, do they have the public good in their best interests? I mean, they're trying to make a profit. And we've seen in certainly a whole wide range of industries where that can lead to problems. And there's a role that government regulation can play working with industry to address some of these harms. We only have clean air and clean water and safe food to eat and safe medicines, safe airplanes to fly in because of government regulation of these industries. And there's going to have to be ways that we're going to see government regulation of AI to address some of these potential harms. You know, as we've been discussing this, uh, one of our subscribers, Yifat, wrote in uh, to remind us about um, disinformation and misinformation. Uh, they are already being deployed by countries, by malactors, non-state actors in ways that have disrupted elections that have, you know, really harmed the public good uh, around the world. AI, of course, could weaponize uh, the idea of misinformation and disinformation in a way that I suppose we haven't even begun to imagine, right? That's right. And one of the things that AI can do is generate persuasive disinformation, whether it's text or very realistic images, and do it easily and cheaply at scale and make it easier for malicious actors to spread this kind of disinformation out and to really flood our uh, you know, information channels with just bad, spammy, fake information. The same way that, I don't know about you, but my phone's ringing all the time with spam calls. But at least when I pick up the phone, I can tell that it's a bot that I'm talking to if it's recorded. That's not going to last very long. And we've already seen people do things like voice cloning. And in fact, it's been used in fraud, for example, um, where you can take someone's voice, clone it, and it's very convincing and realistic. So that's a pretty scary world that we're entering into where we're going to see things, we're going to hear things and read things, and we don't know if it was written by or created by a bot or a human. There are ways to address that. Public awareness is one. A bot disclosure law, or what some books have called a Blade Runner law, which I, I love this term, where basically companies have to acknowledge if they're using a bot is another way. But there's going to be bad actors out there. We need to find defenses against this as well. So given how much you're scaring us, I think this is a good moment to talk about regulation. Um, you, the, there are several dimensions to this, but I'll start with one part of it. So Sam Altman, we've been talking about him, the CEO of OpenAI, he's called for the creation of an IAEI for AI. That's an alphabet soup, but <laughs> IAEI is, of course, the nuclear watchdog in Vienna. Um, what do you make of that proposal? Yeah, it rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but it's gotten a lot of traction. So the British Prime Minister has talked about it. The UN Secretary General has picked this up. I think the idea that over time, we're going to need some kind of global governance for AI makes a lot of sense. Now, you can't take what we did for nuclear weapons and directly port that over. But there are some important lessons here. I think we're likely to start first at the national level with regulations on training some of the most powerful AI systems and controls around the hardware, but then finding ways to get countries to cooperate on those. And what we're really focused on here is safety 
and controlling proliferation. So ensuring that companies, uh, if they're training the most advanced models, the most capable systems right at the edge of AI, in part because we're kind of exploring some unknown territory here. We don't always know what these models are going to do until we make them and then test them and go, oh, wow, it can you know, create disinformation or synthesize chemical weapons or be used for cyber attacks. Having agreements in place among countries to understand where are these computing resources, how are they being used, and are countries adhering to best practices in terms of testing and safety standards, I do think that's going to be important and we're going to want to get there over time. So can I ask you about something that's been worrying me about regulation? I worry that I get a bit of a deja vu feeling from the era of tech regulation. And in fact, you can name your industry over the last 30, 40 years. And it always seems like, you know, company execs will come out and say, oh, we really want regulation and this is why we need it. But then behind the scenes, they tend to work to lobby against regulation or, you know, try and sort of uh, delay regulation. And then on the other side, you have lawmakers who inevitably are just, you know, uh, on average, you know, 30 to 40 years older than the tech executives they are uh, sort of pitted up against. They are not experts in the field. They don't always understand what they're dealing with. Uh, so you have a bit of a mismatch there. Uh, and then there's the urgency and time pressure. Um, how does regulation even get developed in circumstances like this? And then underpinning all of this is everyone's competing against each other. So how do you get them to agree on constraints? Well, I think you've laid out all of the very big obstacles um, that are in the way of seeing successful regulation on AI. And the history of regulation on other attack areas, like say facial recognition or data privacy or social media, you could name it, not very encouraging here. Now, we haven't had a great history in this space. I think, you know, one, it's good to be skeptical of these companies. Are they putting their money where their mouth is? You know, of course, they're going to say these good things. What are they actually pushing for? How does this align with their behavior? I think you've got to look at those things, too. Um, and it's, it's good to be skeptical of what they're asking for. In this case, I, I do think regulation is important. But we don't want just sort of the appearance of regulation. We need to have things that are actually meaningful. Tech literacy is also a big issue in Washington. There's a huge gap in understanding. I'm impressed by the level of energy that's in Washington around AI. Um, we've got lots of members of Congress taking briefings, doing hearings, writing up ads, talking about AI and regulating it. We need to then translate that into real detailed technical understanding and then getting to the place where we figure out how to turn that into regulation. But again, to go back to the nuclear analogy here, we got there with nuclear weapons, that we had policymakers that have a keen understanding, particularly during the Cold War, about how highly enriched uranium works and the process for doing so and how we can control these materials. So I think we have a proof of concept that we can get there. It's just going to take time and a lot of effort and investment in getting people in Washington and the policy space up to speed in this technology and doing so really fast. So one of our subscribers, Mark Radice, asks a question that's very relevant to this, uh, the EU's AI Act. What do you make of it? Well, I think um, I, I salute the effort in that the EU is leading into regulations. I think some of the things that the EU is trying to do are not feasible with the technology today. 
ensuring that you know systems are explainable, for example. A lot of these are just they're kind of a black box. Now that's a problem, but what the effect is going to be of some of these regulations is to just rule out certain kinds of systems and say, well, they can't be permitted. You're not allowed to actually use certain types of models in the EU. That's a choice that some countries might make. I think um, in this case, that's a mistake, and it's going to end up locking EU out of some of the benefits of AI technology. I think a smarter approach is we've got to be focused on what are the goals we want from a policy standpoint, um, and then how do we push the technology to get there over time, cognizant of where the technology is today. And there are some limitations of the technology. We want to try to improve it. Um, but some of the effect of these regulations is just going to be to say, well, we're not going to use AI. And I think that's probably not the best approach going forward. So should there be some sort of a new global regulatory body dedicated to overseeing AI? Um, Alondra Nelson, who was one of the architects of Biden's AI policy until last year, she says no. Um, and she was on this program. She says it would just take forever and we don't have the time. What's your take? I think we need to start with domestic regulation here in the United States and some kind of regulatory body, either a new one or giving an existing body authorities to regulate the most capable AI systems like ChatGPT or GPT-4 or next generation cutting edge AI systems is absolutely necessary. And then I think over time, we want to work towards collaboration with other countries that might be informal at first. Um, but I think that we do want to see common global standards as the technology evolves towards things like safety and non-proliferation. So I would like to get there. I don't think we start with, let's get everybody on board globally. Uh, that, that would be too slow. and It's not going to get us anywhere. But I think that's a good thing to think about on the path that we're on building towards over time. Paul Shari, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that was Paul Shari, the author of the lead essay in FP's new summer print issue, The Scramble for AI. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on this show on our website, foreignpolicy.com live. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. And of course, you also get a range of other benefits, including a magazine. That's it for this week. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time.